But uh, let us do the thing. Home ready. All right. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. I'm Samantha Fields, filling in for Kai Rizdahl, and this is What Do You Want to Know Wednesday, the day we get to answer your questions. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, you can leave us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART or email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. And hey, Kimberly, the first question we have today is for you. Let's hear it. I'm ready. Let's do it. This is Chris from Somerville, Mass. The reports I've seen over the weekend about Donald Trump taking in over $4 million in campaign contributions since its indictment has me asking the question, can that money be legally used to help pay for his indictment defense? Good one. Very good question. So in case you missed it, uh, former President Trump's 2024 campaign is using his indictment and arrest, you know, sort of um, (laughs) arrest-ish, is using his indictment as a big fundraising opportunity. On Monday, the Trump campaign said they had raised $7 million since his indictment was announced last week. And look, Trump is absolutely no stranger to donor funds being used to pay for his legal fees. He's been doing that pretty much since he uh, started running the first time. And mm-hmm. it's but but it's still not clear if he can use these funds to pay for his legal defense in this particular case. So, for example, the Trump campaign used a little over $58 million in donor funds to cover legal and compliance expenses between 2015 and 2020, according to The New York Times and the Campaign Finance Institute, because those legal fees were associated with things that his campaign was doing, like, I don't know, Mm. debating the legitimacy of the presidential election. Since he left office, Trump has been using money raised by his PAC, which is called Save America, to pay for his personal legal fees, which is sort of tangible. Like a PAC can spend money on whatever it wants to. So basically the fundraising emails from the Save America PAC are, you know, basically giving Trump money to spend on what he wants to. But since Trump became a 2024 candidate, some campaign finance experts really question if he can keep doing that because to do so could be seen as a campaign contribution for him, which would be subject to the legal limit of $3,300. And then there's also rules about how you can spend that money. So, for example, the uh, Federal Election Commission does allow candidates to pay for legal expenses using campaign funds, but if... Those expenses are related to campaign activity, and that covers expenses that would only have been incurred due to the individual's status as a candidate. So, for example, Trump's lawyers could potentially argue that the hush money case he's been arrested for is a campaign activity related legal expense because it has to do with him potentially influencing an election. Or they could make the argument that he's being politically targeted because of his campaign. Um, But, you know, it falls into a gray area, particularly because Trump's Personal, political, and business interests have always been so, so intertwined. Extremely confusing and complicated. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, our system wasn't 
built. Our like campaign finance system was not built for this. And <laughs> no. there's no a- political appetite to update those rules because too many people benefit from it on, on both sides. Um, OK, moving on to our next question. Let's hear it. This is Kristen calling from Philadelphia, where we made national news because our water was possibly contaminated by a chemical spill. So now I'm wondering if you can make me smart. What is the value of a clean water system? And what is the cost to not having it? I know we had to run out and buy bottled water because the city advised us to. But is there a bigger economic story here? Thanks for helping make me smart. Take care. Another great question. Thank you for yeah. sending this one in, Kristen. This one is kind of hard to answer, I would say. Um, my sense is that you're thinking a lot about it because you just went through this and realizing, uh, as sort of I do anytime I'm somewhere where there is not clean water coming out of the tap, that the value of clean water is huge for public health, for quality of life, and for all sorts of economic things like you mentioned, agriculture, restaurants, manufacturing, all sorts of things. Um, but it's really hard to quantify economically, financially, the cost of having or not having a clean water system in sort of one neat, clear number. But I'm going to give you a few different ones that I hope are kind of interesting reference points. For one, let's start with this fact, which is that almost 9 million people in this country, in the U.S., don't have access to clean water. And at mm-hmm. least 2 million don't have running water at home. And that alone costs the U.S. economy about $9 billion a year. And it's also, as you mentioned, Kristen, expensive. It can be expensive for people who don't have clean water. They right. spend or, you know, they might spend money on bottled water. An average from this report that we'll, we'll link on our site uh, found that people who need to buy bottled water to have at home spend on average about $1,300 a year buying bottled water, which is a lot of money. Mm. And people also spend or lose about 15,000 more dollars a year not having clean water either on healthcare costs or lost productivity than people who do have it at home. So those are kind of the personal costs. Um, And then, you know, one other example that I think is always worth bringing up when we're talking about clean water is Flint, of course, one of the the most sort of well-known water crises in this country, though certainly not the only one. But in the nine years that it's been going on, and I think it is worth mentioning that that crisis is still going on, it has cost the state of Michigan more than a billion dollars so far, and over $600 million of that was in a settlement with people, families who have been affected by the water crisis. Um, meanwhile, this statistic was kind of shocking to me. If they had just treated the water properly in the first place so that the lead pipes did not corrode, it would have only cost about $80 a day. So wow that's sort of a worthwhile comparison to make, I think. Um, And just in case you want one more number, in case that wasn't enough, um, the EPA estimates it'll cost at least $472 billion over the course of 20 years to maintain and improve the drinking water infrastructure in this country. So not totally sure if that answers your question, Kristen, but... You know, I'm sure you've been thinking a lot more about the value of clean water um, since sort of going through this experience in Philadelphia. And it really comes with a lot of high costs, not having access to it for the economy, personally, health, mental health wise uh, and all sorts of different ways. Yeah, I remember I did a story about a community that's like, I don't know, 70 miles from Washington, D.C., where people did not have clean running water. So, yeah, it was that, 
you know, pipes didn't go out to where they live. And sure, plenty of people all over the country use well water. But if you can't afford to dig a well or your well is in bad repair or contaminated, then you're just out of luck. And these Mm -hmm. people were, you know, getting water deliveries from charitable organizations. And it was really stark to, to think about how close they are to the nation's capital. Not that it's okay anywhere, but just the despair the disparities in access to something like clean water here in the United States. Yeah. And just how much time people can spend looking for clean water, whether whether that's here in the U.S. or in other parts of the world where they don't have access to it, sort of all of the things that they're not able to do because they have to spend time sort of looking for it or, or sort of purifying it. Um, and then just the health piece I just keep coming back to, you know, like, yeah. It, it's it's such a huge piece of of public health, and obviously that mm-hmm. has enormous economic costs. All right, great question, Kristen. Thank you for that one. We have another one from Alan in Minnesota, and he wrote us an email that asked, "Can you make me smart on why banks aren't increasing interest rates to encourage more deposits?" Short answer: because they don't have to. Uh, but the longer <laughs> answer <laughs> is done next. Uh, Done next. Um, You know, it's sort of about supply and demand. So bumping up interest rates on savings accounts is an effort by banks to appeal to more depositors so that they can increase the amount of cash that they're holding so that they can have that money to lend out at higher interest rates, you know, for a variety of things, right? Typically, savings interest rates ebb and flow along with the Fed's interest rates adjustment, but not always. So while the Fed has been hiking interest rates over the past year, average savings interest rates have really lagged behind. And we can partially blame the pandemic for that. Many Americans stashed their stimulus checks in savings accounts and banks, as a result, had a lot more money on deposit more than they needed to loan out. So they didn't have any incentive to offer higher interest rates because people were going to put the money in there anyway, right? So, but this started to change as those pandemic relief programs came to an end and yet people kept on spending. And so those numbers of that amount of cash that people were keeping in banks started to drop. And right now, the average rate on a savings account is 0.23%, according to Bankrate, less than 1%. Now, who's really using that? People who aren't thinking about it, right? If you maybe have automatic deposit into your savings account, you aren't really paying much attention because you're just stashing the money there. But Online banks offer rates that are much higher, especially because they need those deposits. So you can see some in the 4% range. And as interest rates keep going up, there's more of a push for banks to stay competitive as other high-yielding options close, more closely tied to the Fed's interest, rates increase, interest rate increases like treasury bills are becoming a lot more attractive to depositors, especially as people find out about them. And this mm-hmm. is especially true for smaller banks. Like, Really big banks have a lot of cash. They're not too worried about it. So you're probably going to get a higher interest rate from a smaller community bank than you might from sort of a huge Wall Street bank or something like that. The other thing that's happening is that rates for savings accounts and certificates of deposit are climbing. And CDs, if you remember them from your youth, are having uh, their moment in the sun after, I guess, a whole generation of falling out of favor. Banks are keep it. The way a CD works, for those who maybe have not 
been familiar because they haven't been popular in a while, um, is that you give the bank your money for a set period of time. And the longer you let the bank have your money, the higher an interest rate it pays you. And so some banks are offering rates around 5% if you keep your money with them for a year. While the benefits of moving money into these higher paying accounts may seem obvious, a lot of people still are not doing that. And, you know, money experts say that one reason people might be a little bit reluctant to do that is because it could be a big hassle to change banks. That's according to the New York Times. The other thing is a lot of people are afraid to lock up their money in yeah. anything that makes it seem like you can't get it right away, especially I in an environment where people, yeah, where people are feeling a little nervous about the economy. Yeah, for sure. I feel like I have a chunk of change I have to figure out what to do with. And it does. First of all, it's just it's a big hurdle to get over sometimes, mostly just mentally, I'm sure, to just move your money around. But I think mm-hmm. that's a that's a big consideration is feeling like it's liquid, you know? Yeah. All right. Last question of the day. Here we go. Hi, Make Me Smart crew. This is Alicia from Portland, Oregon. I have a multi-part question about I-bonds. I Mm. see the interest rate is set to change April 30th. With normal bonds, the interest rate doesn't change over the life of the bond. But since I-bonds are tied to inflation, if I buy a bond at today's rate, will that rate change during the life of the I-bond? If the rate is subject to change, why was there such a rush to purchase them last fall right before that rate change? Thanks for making me smart. Great question. And short answer is yes, the rate will change over the life of the I-bond. Basically, I-bonds, as you said, they're inflation-adjusted savings bonds issued by the U.S. government. And the interest rate on them is actually a combination. There's a fixed rate and then there is a variable rate. So the fixed rate you get for the life of the bond, and it's usually very low, um, less than 1%, as we were just talking about (laughs) with many savings accounts. Um, But then the variable interest rate on the bond is tied to inflation and changes every six months. And lately, because inflation has been so high, that variable interest rate on I-bonds has also been higher than normal. So when you buy an I-bond, you lock in the variable rate, which is usually the higher rate, for the first six months that you own it. And then sort of the next six months is a different rate because, as we said, it sort of changes in, in May and in November. Right now, the rate on I-bonds that you buy uh, between last November and the end of this month is 6.89%. So that's pretty high. But last fall, the reason people were rushing to buy them was because the interest rate was even higher. It was Mm 9.62%. And that was better than you could get at least guarantee on almost any other kind of investment, (laughs) at least a very low or no risk investment, which I-bonds are. So people really wanted to get in on that rate of return at a time when sort of everything else feels either volatile or, you know, like it's not going to give you much of a return at all. Even if that was only for six months, that 9.62%, people wanted it before it dropped, you know. And the thing is, they're low risk investments. um, And I think a lot of people were feeling like, why not? So... Uh, I did a story back sort of in the day or two before that rate expired uh, Mm -hmm. about how Treasury's website was crashing because so (laughs) many people wanted them. Everyone was trying to get in on them uh, at the end. But one interesting thing, actually, um, that I was reading in Yahoo Finance is that people who bought the I-bonds or buy the I-bonds now, sort of before the end of April, may actually, depending on how long they hold it, end up making more in the long term because that 
fixed rate, even though it's super low, is higher now for bonds you buy now than it was for the bonds people bought sort of, you know, before October. So, so it all depends I how think long you keep it. We need to unpack that a little bit more. So since there's that sure. fixed rate that's actually the inflation rate, you know, that is going to last beyond that six-month window. And so that's why you can make more money over time, right? Right, depending on how long you hold it. You have to hold it for yeah. a pretty long time in order for that super low fixed rate to sort of beat out the the shorter-term variable inflation rate, right? So okay. if you only have it for a few years, the variable inflation rate, which is generally higher, is the one that matters more. But if you're going to hold on to it for a long time, the fixed rate can matter too. Okay. That's interesting. All yeah, right. super interesting. And that is it for today. But before we go, we want to share some super exciting news. Make Me Smart has been nominated for a Webby Award, woo. which, yay! Woo, woo. <laughs> Alex is in the engineering <laughs> booth giving us the raise hands. Love it. Um, this is kind of like a People's Choice Awards for the best of the internet. And we are super honored to be nominated, but we're not going to be able to win without your support. And you know we love to win. So you can vote for Make <laughs> Me Smart from now until April 20th by going to the webbyawards.com. We'll also include a link on our show page. Tell your friends, cast a vote if you feel so inclined. We'd really appreciate it. Early and often. <laughs> Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Drew Jostad. And shout out one more time to Alex Simpson here in St. Paul, who helped me out on my last day here. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our acting senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. And Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. I know I didn't hit the time post, but that's okay. <laughs> Close enough. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.